Welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are the retro talk program for nostalgia and baby boomer stuff right here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. And welcome to our program. We're so pleased to have you with us. We have a fun show lined up for you today that we trust you will enjoy and uh, hope that uh, you'll get a lot of good memories from it. We're going to talk today about scouting. Now, a lot of you maybe were in the Scouts when you were kids, and certainly George and Mike were Scouts when they were kids, when they were younger, uh, and even beyond. And uh, I never had the opportunity to be a Scout, but what we're going to do is we're going to turn this segment over to the both of them, let Mike and George share their memories with you of their Scouting days. And uh, I'll be here taking notes and uh, maybe interjecting a few questions here and there, but Mike... George, I know the both of you have a lot of good memories about your scouting days. Uh, maybe you could start off by telling us how you got involved with scouting uh, back in the day. What What are your memories as we uh, look at this fun topic? George? Well, from my perspective, we have what was called a neighborhood Boy Scout troop uh, in Burbank, California, where there were a number of us. They were all the same age. We were all enrolled at the same elementary school. Our mothers knew each other from uh, PTA, and so it was a natural outgrowth of that, and we had a great deal of fun from the mid to late 1960s engaged in all of the different scouting activities. Then I was going to say that uh, in the decade of the 2000s, following my ordination uh, to the ordained clergy of the Orthodox Church in America, I was very much involved with the revival of a Boy Scout troop with our church. And uh, that was also enormously rewarding because of the wonderful outcomes that occurred there, which hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about. And then I wanted just to mention that my wife, Sharon, was a member of Girl Scouts. She was a decorated Girl Scout. She still has her sash with all the merit badges, and it's proudly displayed uh, in her reading room at home. And her mother was cookie chairman, so she's got great memories of having the house uh, filled with boxes and boxes of those wonderful Girl Scout cookies. Were you a Cub Scout, too? Yes. I was was with Cub Scouts. Actually, our neighborhood troop, we were all Cub Scouts. And uh, as a consequence of just growing up and people moving away, we all basically stopped when we reached what was called the Weebelows stage. So basically, it was from 1965 till about 1968, 69. So you were in the Weebelows. Yes, well, there, there were cubs, what bears, lions, and wolves. Right, it was the the and that, and actually it was you, you were you were a bobcat when you started. Bobcat, yeah. Then you became a wolf. Then you became a bear, and then the lion. And of course, and then there was the weebelows provided the segue into Boy Scouts. And on Cub Scout meeting day, you proudly wore your uniform to school, did you not? You had to wear your uniform to school, absolutely. In fact, I remember we wore the uniform on the day that we went both to the Billy Barty program and then later when we went to Let's Make a Deal. So you went to Billy Barty. We went to Billy Barty. Of course, you tried to win the Royce Union bicycle, which no one ever won. No, but one of our troop mates actually won a basketball, and every one of us got a a goodie bag with all kinds of uh, tasty treats. So it was great. And our den mother... When we went to the Let's Make a Deal show, uh, she exchanged her little cap that she wore as the den mother, and she won, I guess, a whole uh, dining room suite, you know, a table and all, with all of the fixings. So it was quite impressive. Now, didn't you find it exciting on Cub Scout Day, Cub Scout Afternoon? Of course, you had the den mother 
obviously the mom of one of your friends, and den mothers would change around every year or two, but occasionally you'd have the same den mother for years because you'd have a lady who had a son and then another son and another son. So you'd have uh, the den mother for three sets of sons, but the interesting part were the crafts. Oh, definitely. And that was when <laughs> when my mom was den mother is when we did that. We built, a, for example, we set up a tent in the backyard of our home, and everybody was uh, allowed to come and have a sleepover in our backyard. Of course, there was parental supervision for that. And then also we created skits in which we had to build our own sets. We had one skit, for example, where we were 49ers, that is, you know, miners during the gold rush of California. And then a later one, uh, we created our own uh, replica of NASA uh, space control. Uh, where we did a fusion of American astronauts meeting Santa Claus. And so we had all kinds of fun. And mom was the one that was really uh, inspiring to all of us to, uh, you know, uh, make all kinds of fun things and, and really enjoy scouting for what it was. And you'd have a day where you would, of course, go to school. And then afterwards, I think our Cub Scout day was a Tuesday. And we would leave school and we'd walk over to the location and the den mom and her assistant would have cupcakes or refreshments. And it was it was such an interesting time of day because you were off-site from school. You weren't home. And it was a nice place to unwind, hang out with your buddies. And, of course, like we said, do crafts. But then there was athletic. I think we had crazy softball. I don't know if you remember, but there would have to be a physical component to the meetings. And crazy softball was a was a ball made out of wadded-up old sweat socks that were secured by a bigger sweat sock and tied in a knot. And you'd take a softball bat, and you'd hit that, and you could run in any direction, any base. And I, I recall those because the bad part about it, you would get your Cub Scout uniform pants with grass stains, and you'd hear about it when you got home. Yes, you did. <clears throat> were you a blue jean guy? kind of pants or did you have the the gold trim we had pants? we had the gold trim no we went no, all we went, you, yeah we went all the way and I, and i've got to tell you one of the things that i also remember was the pinewood derby yours truly yep. still has his fourth place trophy there uh in in my office here in san diego california pinewood derby yeah and that was so much fun because you know, you were in, involved with making a vehicle and then racing it along uh, yes. you know, the, uh, the the track that was created at uh, the nearby park where everybody gathered. It was an amazing time. Now, did you win? Yes, I won fourth place. Well, of course. Yeah, so I have, I, I have my trophy. You better believe I won. I was happy, too, because in my case, I did most of the work on it myself. There were some kids, though, that it was very obvious that you they know had what help. Was up. Oh, my gosh. There was one that one kid actually because he was not a model builder, but I guess it was his brother-in-law that uh, created a, a replica of the Munster Mobile. And so he won best show. It wasn't necessarily the fastest, but uh, his was built uh, for, for, for show. Mine was built for speed. It was, okay. it was very functional. But, and you recall going back to the speaking of Pinewood Derby, going back to the kit. It was nothing more, folks, and many of you, of course, probably all of you younger listeners to Galaxy Moonbeam are not going to be able to understand what we're talking about, but imagine a block of wood. That's all it was. (laughs) And a a mimeographed sheet of paper telling you some of the specifications and four plastic wheels, 
Yeah, I think four nails to hold the wheels on to the wood. Yes. And the rest was left to your imagination. And yes. there were some vivid imaginations in some of my colleagues who also entered the Pinewood Derby. The problem I had is when you made your cut, you better make it right because there was no go-backs. There were no do-overs. Well, that's very true. And also, I have to admit that um, slyness and craftiness was very important. I can now confess years later uh-huh. that uh, I created a little compartment inspired by my mother where we put in uh, a lead weight so that uh, it would give uh, some extra power to the car so that, because it would start with, you know, it would be released from a uh, release point high and it would go down this ramp. And so I had a lot of speed. And, and mom thought, yeah, just give a little extra weight there. But yeah. then she was very clever. She took some plastic wood and it was covered up. So at the bottom, it looked yeah. seamless. Yeah, we used nickels to weight down the cars. Oh, very well done. But, folks, when this show goes goes up on podcast on Apple, we're going to put a picture up of a, or several of the various models of Pinewood Derby cars because you could really get creative and you uh, being a born and bred aeronautics guy. Yeah. Aeronautics was, if you had any inkling of how aeronautics and uh, dynamics work, you could actually win a race. But the track, as George mentioned earlier, was nothing more than a piece of plywood that went, I forgot what the regulation length was, but it was bent, and it sloped down, and I think there were six cars to a race heat. And, of course, the car that came in first, the problem was being the owner of the car that came in first, because all kinds of things could go wrong in the world of Pinewood Derby. Primarily, you didn't have the weight factor properly, or you cut the thing wrong. Uh, With us, with me, I cut the point. I was a pointy kind of guy. So I'd cut the front to the nose, to make it pointed, and then I had this great idea to take a wood screw and make a spear out of the nose, thinking that it might jab. I was instantly disqualified, to make a long story more monotonous. I was thrown out because uh, you weren't supposed to turn your Pinewood Derby car into a deadly weapon. I like it, though. Yes, it would probably work nowadays. I think nowadays it would work. But, yeah, see, at that time you would be regarded as kind of a little edgy. Yes, you. yeah, you were the guy that uh, mom's said to stay away from but did you put parts left over from your model cars your monogram model cars and revel stick your little pieces of chrome that were left over it's like the rearview mirror that you forgot to put on the car after you but put them on the cars uh guys would decorate them the only luxury the only luxury that i had was that i had of course as you correctly noted space age toys and i had a little tiny miniature astronaut that i took out and I placed him in the seat, and so he was strapped in with his uh, full uh, space uh, helmet and regalia, and he was uh, ready to uh, rocket to victory, which he did, and I'm grateful for that. But I, I want to just mention here on somewhat of a more serious note about scouting, you know, one of the things that is often talked about but maybe is not always appreciated is how it really does help shape character and can make a positive difference in the lives of others. I was able to witness this decades later during the decade of the 2000s when I worked with a fellow minister in helping to revive a Boy Scout troop for the cathedral that I was assigned to serve when I was in Seattle, Washington. And I remember, of course, we had some spectacular hikes, Carbon Glacier, Snoqualmie River. But this is what I want to leave you with. We produced two Eagle Scouts from our little troop. And we had probably about a dozen scouts, if I recall correctly. So 
out of that dozen, there were two that became Eagle Scouts, and there was a third young man that became a Medal of Honor winner, which, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, a Medal of Honor winner is more rare than an Eagle Scout in the context of scouting. And this Medal of Honor winner uh, saved his entire family from perishing uh, in a house fire. He rescued uh, his two baby brothers and then was able to call the authorities. And uh, as a result of his timely action, he saved everyone's lives. Very touching story. It was covered by the local Seattle stations, and he was later honored for that, not only with a Medal of Honor, but uh, in the context of uh, uh, being uh, featured in, in the local uh, stations there in Seattle. Well, George, you know, American history, and for that matter, world history, there are numbers and numbers, dozens and dozens of, of notable figures who were Boy Scouts or explorers, Cub Scouts. It's not enough time in the show to go down the list, but politicians, notable people... There were the Boy Scouts, and when you think of Boy Scouts, you think of the guys with the high boots, and they're out in the San Gabriel Mountains hiking around and, and identifying plants. I was in a different Boy Scout group. It was the Explorers, but it was law enforcement explorers. Wow. And it was with the Los Angeles Police Department, and we would actually meet at the police station. We would go on ride-alongs, and I remember we were actually used as cheap labor because when there was an event, say, at the Hollywood Bowl, and they were short of, of police officers, they would get a, and it was 16, 17-year-old kids. It was so thrilling that we'd have our flashlight and our uniform, and we would, we would guard certain areas of the Hollywood Bowl. And that, I think that's probably what led me to law enforcement was the fact that I didn't. I wasn't the hiking type. I didn't want to go and learn how to pan for gold, but I loved that whole idea. And that was during the days of shows like Dragnet and Adam Twelve, and to be able to put a police. They were khakis. They were in LAPD blue, but you felt like, oh wow. And we'd meet at the police station. All of the all the glamour and color of, of the whole police, the whole feeling, environment. We learned at an early age, so that that was very exciting for me. Mike, I think you and I, our paths may have inadvertently crossed during that time because were okay. you were you involved also with providing monitoring activities at scouting events? Because yes. I remember, okay, because there was an event, I believe it was held at either Occidental College or the Rose Bowl. It in, was. In which all of the scouts from Southern California were gathered there together and we were on the field and there were some older boys, which yes. would have been you, yes. that were there to make sure that everybody stayed in line. Yeah. And I remember that event so very fondly because, you know, we were there to meet other scouts. And well, so I would say that you and I, without even knowing it, just yeah. like it was that we were both baptized at the same church, yes. our paths It was crossed. called Urban Jamboree is what it was known as. Yes. And it, you're right, George. It was at Occidental. It was at Oxy. And I remember it every year, and we would provide the gate security. That's it. That's where I, that's where I would have that's where I would scouts. Have, that's where I would have seen Incredible. you. Incredible. That's great. We're going to take a retro break, a retro commercial break. When we come back, this is kind of a dovetail into our Boy Scout story. We're going to talk about all the great little candies and gums and things of our past nostalgia that went with going to a Cub Scout meeting. And don't go away. We're going to be right back. You're listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight here on Galaxy Nostalgia Network. And here's our retromercial from way, way back. Rice Aroni, the San Francisco treat. Rice Aroni, the flavor can't be beat. One pan, no boiling cooking ease. A flavor that is sure to please. Rice Rice Aroni, the San Francisco treat. Rice Aroni, the delicious break from potatoes. Now in six fabulous flavors. 
One pan, no boiling, cooking ease. A flavor of that is sure to please. Rice Aroni, the San Francisco treat. Welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Gilbert Smitty Smith, along with my good buddies Mike Bragg and George Helalakos. We've been, I've been enjoying. I'm sure you have too. Them reminisce about their scouting days, and it sounded like a lot of fun. And we were gonna, we have a second topic that we're gonna do on this program, but we're gonna maybe sort of tie the two of them together. The second topic we have on this program is the vintage candies from our childhood when we remember going to the candy store, the drugstore, the liquor store, even with our moms or dads, and seeing all of that neat candy that disappeared for a while and now seems to be making quite a comeback. You know, maybe you two as scouts maybe enjoyed some candy on some occasions and some of those vintage candies. Uh, Mike, we were you and I were talking earlier, uh, a few days ago as a matter of fact, that a lot of these candies are making a comeback. The Abba Zabba's, the, uh, I don't know if the candy cigarettes are around. I think they are. I think they're available online. But just so many candies from the past that disappeared for so many years, they're coming back. That's a, really a nostalgia craze, and it's great to be able to have these candies again. Yeah, and it's interesting that these are making a return. There are certain stores, in fact, several years ago, Smitty, you and I went to Los Angeles and met a fellow by the name of John Neese, who actually has a nostalgia soda pop and candy store with every kind of brand you can think of that is still made somewhere. And the key to it, they never, Smitty and George, these brands were never actually ever discontinued. But because of the big candy brands and the big makers taking shelf space, they were squeezed slowly over the years. They were squeezed out of existence. But now... With people and even our friends, the millennials, coming back and wanting to know, especially a lot of listeners to our show, what went on 50 years ago, 60 years ago? What did you eat? What did you do? Where where did you go? And it's amazing how we were able to locate a lot of these brands that we thought were no longer around and had made a comeback. Well, they'd never left. And I'll just I'll go back to a, a photo here, and I'll post it. From 1947, there's a picture of the candies that were available to kids and, of course, grown-ups in 1947, 71 years ago, uh, Big Hunk, Zagnut, Sugar Babies, Red Hots, Dots, Chuckles. Remember the Chuckles, the little jelly things that were smeared in in (laughs) sugar? Uh, Chicklets, the little candy buttons, uh, Good and Plenty. These were all, 70 years ago, you could go buy these. Of course, they were a lot cheaper. They were a nickel if not less, but they were available, and they're making a tremendous comeback now. You can order them online, and there's certain specialty stores. In fact, there was a recent story in CBS Sunday Morning about the daughter of Ralph Lauren, who has a chain of candy shops, Nostalgia Candy, in the country, and she's just doing a knockdown business making these candies available. George, you know, even in San Fernando Valley, you'd have the corner store, or you'd have long before 7-Elevens were on every half block. There was the corner market or the area of the store where you could get your goodies. And I know you probably had some. I can only guess what your favorites must have been. You seem like a good and plenty guy. Well, you're absolutely right. I was a good and plenty guy. I certainly enjoyed Dots. But I wanted to share something with you that you just reminded me of that I haven't thought about in years. 
one of our fellow scouts, his parents were in the candy business. And not only were they involved with the candy business, but because of that position, they were able to get direct access to the distributors to get all of these specialty candies that you just uh, noted that were not widely available. And so all year round, it could be trick or treat for us because we were able on occasion to have these candies. But of course... We want to maintain good character. They were rationed very carefully. And only around holiday season were, were they given to us with greater generosity. But I do recall that all of those candies that you recounted, they were part of our after-school treats that we got. And it was because of the ingenuity and, I should say, the generosity of, of this uh, mother and father of one of our fellow uh, Cub Scouts that they were able to provide that for us. And so we didn't have to spend time going you know, to the grocery store or other such places that you mentioned, although I'm very familiar with that. I remember that probably the best places in the San Fernando Valley were these little mom-and-pop grocery mm-hmm. stores that were embedded uh, in the neighborhoods themselves. Mm-hmm. They weren't really part of a strip mall or even a downtown business circuit, but they were literally embedded in the neighborhoods, and that's where you might find some of these candies. But because of our uh, uh, having a, a, one of the sets of parents that provided that mm-hmm. for us, we had, I think, special access. Yeah, that, that, that is interesting, George, that uh, you mentioned the little stores. You know, there was always the little mom-and-pop stores mm-hmm. that were in the neighborhoods, and I think each one was a little different. Each one had a little different variety of candies, and, you know, you could go in there, and it was just uh, a kid in a candy store. You were looking at all the stuff that they had, and it was just amazing. Mike did bring up a very interesting point, and, again, we remember this program that we did with John Neese, I think about six years ago, we had, we had not done Galaxy all that, that yeah, not done Galaxy all that long when we went to visit John Neese. But he did mention, Mike, the same thing with the with the vintage sodas or the sodas. They never stopped making them. It's just that the big candy companies, the big soda companies, would buy up the the uh, the space in the mm-hmm. stores, and they were kind of squeezed out. And so I think for a, the longest time, you had to really seek out a specialty place where you could buy these things. Now, thanks to the Internet, we're able to order them and we're able to find places that carry these sodas and these candies. Sure, and a lot of the cheap toys, the little balsa wood gliders you can find now. Uh, we we do tie in the Boy Scout and Cub Scout story with the candy because I recall very vividly some of the rules that governed scouting. And one was that you would have... We'd take turns bringing a treat, and of course, my mom was very good at the Rice Krispie squares, which are still famous today. The yes. rice, you know, you can't sure. go too far without getting a Rice Krispie square if you're a child and you have an event. It's your turn to bring. But also, the explorers and especially the the Boy Scouts would actually go out to the campgrounds. In our case, in LA, it was the San Gabriel. San Gabriel Mountains had their own Boy Scout compound, but there were certain candies that you could bring, and there was no problem. Oh, those are not healthy. There's too much sugar. That was not even a point in the 60s and 70s. The point was messing up your uniform or causing a mess. So it was much like the Army in World War II. You could carry Necco wafers, and you could carry M&Ms, and you could carry candies that did not melt, and you could chew all the bubble gum you could put in your mouth, but there were certain candies you could not carry on a on a scouting event because it would stain your uniform or for whatever reason but i remember the rolls of neko wafers remember those george very much have the black ones and the pink ones and the white ones i think and they were in a little wax roll of course you would buy neko wafers they were nickel 
I think that's how they got Necco, maybe. You put them in your shirt, and they wouldn't melt. There would, mm. Unless you got them wet. If you slobbered on them, you were, <laughs> you were finished. Your uniform was finished, and you'd hear from your mom. You know, Mike, I want to share something with you. You've just in, uh, inspired yet another great memory, and it involves candy. What we were encouraged to do, because we had a surplus oh. of candy by virtue of the parents that I just referred to that were in the candy business, one of our activities as scouts was that we did visitations to shut-ins, to the elderly, to what would now be termed memory care patients, although back then they weren't referred to as such. And we would visit them and we would bring to them little special gift boxes or bags with the candy. And what was so inspiring, and I can see it now through the eyes of an adult, that in bringing that candy to them, we inspired memories from for them when they were children. And I can't tell you how touching it is now to remember that, to think that, you know, we were just sharing the candy that we had, and by bringing it to, again, elderly, to shut-ins, that we brought extra joy to others because they, too, also enjoyed that same candy that we did, and suddenly... There is this bond between the elderly and very young people, and suddenly time has been transcended. And it's so interesting to me now, looking at it through the eyes of faith, to think about how a gesture of kindness with a simple little treat, like you just mentioned, was able to make a difference. And we also included... Um, oftentimes homemade treats that our moms made, just as you said, Mike, not only Rice Krispie treats, but also homemade cookies, whether they be oatmeal or chocolate chip, or my mom made kuludakia, the the Greek Mm -hmm. cookies uh, that, that we knew growing up. And wow, to be able to share that with others it, it reminded all of us about how those simple pleasures were not just confined mm-hmm. to being a young person, but it stayed with you for the rest of your life. And your, and your sensories, too, George, on that note. You're going back in time, in, in our case, 40 years ago, 45 years ago, the, the, the smell of the honey, the warm honey from the baklava. Yes. And the little pieces of the, the nuts, the walnuts. And yes. you'd, you'd take a couple of the walnuts and... and You'll never forget the taste and the and the honey leaking out on a hot day out of the wax paper. We'd have some mama throw them in and with the school lunch, and they'd come out. And but again, going back to the scouting, did you have? We had <laughs> we had fun drives, fundraising drives that involved something that never made sense. The name saltwater taffy was it made from salt water or not- why? It was not. Do you know why? Because it originated. In uh, Palisades Park in New Jersey. Oh, my gosh. Mm. And it was called saltwater taffy because you could only get it at the pier or at the ocean. Yeah, exactly. That's right. why. At the, oh, my God. But I we would have that. bags, one-pound bags, and we would sell them door-to-door to run f- to raise funds for our scouting troop. We sold toffee candy. peanuts. Toffee we, peanuts. That's there what you we buy yeah. the can. 50 yeah. cents a can. Yeah. And I remember that each of us was given a box, and we went around the neighborhood. And, of course... I think the Girl Scouts took it to a much higher level with their with their Girl Scout cookies, yeah. uh, which is what sure. uh, my wife Sharon was involved in. But uh, lots of fun, lots of great memories. What great memories! And I I have a question for Mike, for my big brother Mike, because he, uh, Mike, when you were a scout and you were carrying those candies around, did you ever carry around an Astro Pop? And did you ever use the Astro Pop as a weapon? <laughs> those, were, those were the pointed, the yes, pointed, yeah. The pointed. They could be dangerous. Well, I know the den- the dentistry industry 
I think they must have paid serious dollars to keep Astro Pops in production. No doubt. Number one, they were extremely sharp. Enlightened yeah. self-interest. <laughs> they could become a, a defense missile Yes. after school if, if you were so inclined to have to defend yourself and you hadn't bitten the top off your Astro Pop, you could, you could run somebody through it, though, much like Errol Flynn and Captain Blood. Somehow I can imagine through. Mike using his Astro Pop as a yes. weapon. <laughs> well, don't forget, that's how he said he got his start with oh. law enforcement. Yes. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, I was the, sa- the saber-wielding Boy Scout. But it, it was interesting, some of those candies, because how we didn't break our teeth. The things were so hard and so pointed. Mm-hmm. But the nice part about the Astro Pop was that first bite. And I wasn't a licker. I was a biter. Wow. I'd have to crunch those up. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever in my life waited for a lifesaver to dissolve in my mouth. I'm the same way, Mike. <laughs> and that's, my, that's our type A... You know, our, our RCD uh, perspective from the from the broadcast center here at Galaxy. We're going to wrap this show up, folks. We thank you so much for joining us on this show. It's been a half hour, some great memories, uh, talking about scouting and candies and everything else. We do hope you'll check in with us and give us some response on what you think about the shows, even ideas for future shows. Uh, We're going to go now, but we do welcome you back. With over 200 shows, you're bound to find something you relate to, uh, especially you baby boomers out there. We can be found on Facebook, Galaxy Moonbeam Night Site. That's S-I-T-E. Our website's galaxymoonbeamnightsite.com. Uh, Gmail, Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside at gmail.com. But we'd rather you join the family over at our Facebook page because that's where we talk about things. We've got some great folks from all over the world who check in and they're uh, loyal and faithful and listening to our shows and giving us feedback. Uh, I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm George. And the three of us, again, thank you so much for joining us for the last half hours. Uh, stay tuned again for upcoming shows. Uh, we've got a great uh, year. 2018 coming up ahead and until next time galaxy moonbeam night sights right here on galaxy nostalgia network this is the galaxy nostalgia network